song is king, you know, and what we get to do is serve music. As musicians, we get to serve that energy and we're allowed, because we are this sort of sieve where the energy comes through, we get to personalise it. That's it. That's all we get to do. That's our role. If you can surrender to that and be happy to be a part of something bigger than yourself, then only good things are going to happen. Hello, I'm Mark McDonald and welcome back to Meeting Musos. This is our sixth episode, so do check out episodes one to five if you haven't listened to them already. And if you're enjoying the series so far, don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you get the chance to, please do leave a quick rating if you're able to. You can keep up with us on social media and all of the info on how to do that is in the episode description. It's no exaggeration to say that this week's guest is a British songwriting legend. Even if you don't know his name, I can guarantee that you will know his music. He's written and produced for a long list of artists, including Brian Adams, The Spice Girls, Take That, Aretha Franklin, Mary J. Blige and Celine Dion. He's also the composer of the Broadway smash hit musical Finding Neverland, which he co-composed with his best mate Gary Barlow. And this year sees the release of his own album, his own music um, and his own voice on lead vocals. The album is A Yacht Named Sue and that's where we pick up our conversation. Please enjoy this episode with Elliot Kennedy. I'd love to start off by talking about your new album because I've spent this week listening to it <laughs> and it's it's just sheer class it's 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 brilliant and for me personally it's the it's the type of music that i love um is it fair to call it yacht rock i'm assuming it is based on the title yeah it is that was the idea it's a it's a tough one you know because starting the idea of making an album for me is just bizarre in itself you know that i've been doing this from uh, the other side of the microphone the other side of the glass for 30 years and uh so now to make an album now and promote it it seems bananas to me but um it was gary barlow that sort of suggested it in a very strong way after i had a birthday party my 50th birthday party which i invited a load of artists that I'd had hits with to come and sing their hits. And it was a brilliant night, a beautiful night, and um, raised a lot of money for charity. And afterwards, Gary said, Elle, you need to make an album, you know, which I just thought he was insane. You know, <laughs> no <laughs> idea what he was thinking about. Um, and, I, and I just ignored him. And um, I went to see the, the boys uh, play uh, on, the, on their tour, and he arranged for me to meet an agent. <laughs> I said to him, what is up with you? And and he just said, oh, I'm not letting it go, lad. You need to make an album. So I, I didn't think about it much. And then this year happened, this crazy year we've been in. And um, I just thought, well, maybe if I was going to do it, I would go back to doing what I said to all artists. And that would be, you've got to make an album for yourself, something you're happy with that you believe is real, a real slice of who you are. And that era for me was that sort of late 70s, early 80s, what we now know as Yacht Rock, you know, yeah. which is Christopher Cross, Michael McDonald, um, Steely Dan, and, um, you know, Hall & Oates, bands like that, Doobie Brothers, of course. So so I just thought, well, I'm just going to – I'll write a bunch of songs. But in actual fact, the real influence behind the whole thing was a band called Young Gun Silver Fox. I don't know if you're aware of them. They're I'm fantastic. Not, no. They're a new band 
Just go on Spotify, enter Young Gun Silver Fox, and you're going to be lost for days. They've got three amazing yacht albums, and they're now. But they record like they did in the 70s, so it's so authentic. So I had a real uh, yardstick there to, to sort of, you know, come up against. And I became friends with the guys. I actually used them as mentors in a way. Um, sent them some songs. They were really encouraging. They talked to me about the artworks. I spent more time than I thought I would about things like that. You know, I've never had to think about these things before. Yeah. Once I've done my job, it's somebody else's, you know, problem. So it's, it's in all kinds of ways, very, very strange for me. But, um, but at the same time, absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I've enjoyed every moment of it. It's been a, an incredible journey to do it. And I've done it all right here on my own from this house. Played play the instruments, recorded it. Thankfully, I've been able to send out, like, a sax part or a backing vocal part or whatever to my guys who have got their own little setups like this and can record and send back to me. And I've ended up with an album as a result. Amazing. And did you record in the same sort of way as they would have done in the 70s and 80s? That Did you go back to your yeah. analogue roots rather than using the, the more modern stuff that you possibly used on your pop records well i've done it at home but i've i've and and which is all digital um but i've i've been very mindful to use the right kind of instruments the right kind of voicings the right kind of arrangements because i love that that music it's it's quite natural Mm. and uh and straightforward for me to to be able to do that so it's um it's an interesting one i when of course because you're surrounded by modern technology but I'm a real analog freak, you know. So going, so I've got a load of analog synths around me here, and um, I go back to those things for those sounds because immediately you're in the right zone, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it's I tried as much as I could to use Young Gun Silver Fox as an, as an example to like, what would they do? You know, it's like, what what would Jesus do? <laughs> it was like, yeah. what would the Young Gun Silver Fox do <laughs> in any of those situations? And that was a good sort of. Uh, anchor in the right sort of space yeah are they a british band yeah they are they're they're, uh there's actually one american one british guy great singer andy and sean they are and um they're just super talented the arrangements are absolutely spot on the horns the backing vocals listen if you like this style of music go and check them out you're gonna love them i will do yeah definitely and speaking of vocals that was one thing that stood out to me on your album i I had no idea that you had that voice it's i mean you're you're a proper singer and you mentioned michael mcdonald earlier i think i said to you in your the the first email i sent you that there's a real hint of michael mcdonald in in your (laughs) vocals as well is that is that a major influence for you yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those voices, Luther Vandross, uh, Michael McDonald, that you know, all of that, all of that era is is such a strong influence on me. My dad was a singer, right. so you know, and he, he you know, he, he was always he's like a real singer, proper, you know, big voice. He was Irish. Um, everyone can do something in that. It's like Scotland, they're all musicians <laughs> yeah. and singers, and every you know what it's like. Um, so so I sort of oh, – I was always able to sing, but I never wanted to. I never wanted to do that. Um, I never really wanted to perform or go on tour or anything like that. I, I, I was in a band. We got a development deal with a major label. And at the time when I found out the producer, the one producer that I wanted to work with, um, had died in a car crash two weeks before uh-huh. – um, I, I kind of didn't want to do it. So in a weird way, my entire career has been a bit of a dedication to that person. And um, 
I wanted to be a, a songwriter and a record producer, so I really chose the path of least of of most resistance, if you like. Yeah. Because being an artist, you get to sing your own songs, and that's it. So I had to find people who needed songs, and that's been my career. You know, being that hired gun to write the single or whatever. And then in later life, obviously got into musical theatre with uh, Finding Neverland on Broadway, and and. And that sort of gave me a, a whole different buzz, and you know, and and just a new virus to have to deal with, you know. <laughs> that uh, if music wasn't enough, you know, it piles it on. Um, but but it's uh, it, it, it's been like I would say hello to my husky behind me there, this is uh, Charlie Parker, good looking dog, <laughs> great name. <laughs> um, so so um, it's it's making it as real and authentic as possible for me. Just, mm. just to get back to your original point, was really important because I wanted it to stand up. I wanted the vocals to stand up as a singer, and I've, like I said, I've never considered myself a singer. I just wanted to make sure that it was real and honest because uh, I'm, I'm going about this all the time. The thing that I preach about more than anything is honesty in, in performance because that's what I think connects. We know it in musical theatre. We're, we're, we're taught that you know that the whole thing is about transferring emotion and I think that artists forget that um when they're young and you know working things out so I try to instill these important bits of information as often as possible and I had to kind of teach myself the same stuff you know there's no point in doing it it's going to be absolutely honest so a lot of those songs on this album a lot of the vocal performances was quite difficult because they're really honest songs yeah so did you always want to write for other people, I'm just thinking about most people when they discover songwriting, it's normally about writing your own stuff, getting up and singing it, whether it's, you know, pubs and clubs or whatever. What was it that made you decide, I want to write for other artists and go into the production side of things? Do you know what? I found, I actually found that quite easy, and and I still do. I, I, um, I realised I, I, quite early on I made a decision that I didn't want to be that guy that did that thing. Do you know what I mean? That that is uh, the girl group guy or the boy band guy. I mean, girl group bands right. didn't exist before we did Spice Girls, but it, it, you know, well, they didn't. You know, they weren't in the in the limelight. You know, they weren't sort yeah. of happening as much as uh, as they did afterwards. Um, and I so so I I really sort of enjoyed the fact that and and I'm the mo- thing I'm most proud of is you look at my sort of track history. Seldom does it repeat, you know. I I went from sort of Celine Dion, Spice Girls, Brian Adams, you know, S Club Seven. It was more always about them, and I, and I used to love sort of getting in their heads, so spending some time with them, thinking about what they, how they say things, what they believe in, what they want to say to make it believable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So so and 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 as a result, that's why I love co-writing, even if the artist isn't technically a writer. The fact that they can bring their energy to it, they can help you shape it, means it sounds real when they sing it. You know what I mean? It's just as, you know, listen, we've got amazing interpretive singers. Celine Dion, I got the chance to work with a couple of times, and she's amazing at that. Doesn't need to write to make it believable because she's just a incredibly passionate woman. But, mm. um, you know, a lot of artists would struggle with that. You know, they just sort of sing it. 
until you have to say, well, look, what do you think? And they're, well, I don't know if I'd sing that. Right, that's why you're singing it this way. Let's work it out. Let's rephrase this. So, and then you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's a, 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 you know a, 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 a legal co-write. You know that they should be involved in. That. They've brought their energy to it. And that means they're going to go out and sing it 500 times with the same passion as they did the first time. So for me, it was always about getting into the other artist's head and heart and uh, and trying to be make them as honest as possible. So it never bothered me that I wasn't writing for myself because, like I say, I'd sort of switched that off, you know, that part of me. Yeah. Is that where the process starts with you normally then do you normally meet the artist and and get an idea of their energy and what they want to do and then facilitate it rather than having a song and bringing it to them i like to it's not always possible just because um well i'm working for this guy tom seals at the moment i don't know if you know who he is he's a piano player and singer he's very very talented he's like somewhere between jules holland and billy joel you know young english guy um, <clears throat> really great talent, great voice, amazing piano player, and that's really inspiring to me. So I work with a guy called James Jai Wardner, who's a brilliant piano player, and um, so Jim and I have just been putting together these tracks, and I've written a couple of really cool swingy um, big horn arrangements, and it's just so much fun. It's like a release from whatever ever else. So I try to do that as much as possible, bounce from one different style to another and 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 it you can only do that if you have an absolute love affair with music yeah that you know that i can go from from slipknot to beethoven and <laughs> see the beauty in between do you know what i mean where, yeah. where, you know no matter what it is a musical theater and recognize the beauty in that why it works why it touches people classical music and pop and everything else in between so i think that you just have to try and absorb as much music as possible and identify what is where's the honesty in it where where's the heart of the music you know and 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 whoever's done it what what was their passion that interests me beyond anything so so being able to sort of go between different styles has always been my benchmark my the thing i wanted to be remembered for and it's something you do amazingly well just i saw there's a playlist on spotify of every song you've written and you, you just you just look through that and it's one the number of artists on there is incredible but the, as you say the the different styles of music and and different styles of songs there it's it's such a diverse collection of writing as well yeah been a busy, busy few decades <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to know a little bit about your early days where did music start for you did you start by learning a musical instrument so um I grew up in Australia. My parents emigrated when I was uh, three. Um, and Dad was a singer, and he'd started a band. Um, up in the north of England, we have working men's clubs, you know, and um, it, it, that's the scene. If you're a musician, you know, when we're all, when we're all grown up, you want to be in a working men's club band because it's good for your chops. You know, you let, I was a bass player. I was either the bass player, keyboard player, drummer, um, or singer, depending on who was on holiday. And um, if they ever was there, I was the sound guy, you know. So it, it was a bit of a – it was one of those jobs that, that you need to be good at, so it makes you good at playing. 
Um, otherwise, you can't be in a band because they're all the standards really high, and you're playing really modern hits. So you're learning the structure and sort of DNA of classic songs all the time. And that's why it started with me with my dad. Uh, Gary Barlow and I share that that he was a club organist, and the same thing. He has he puts it down to the same thing that when you're living and breathing these standards. Oh, that's a major seventh. Oh, that's a you know a minor ninth. I get it, you know. And you and you sort of work out what is w- why it works. The relationship between bass and chord and melody and you know those fundamentals that you know as, as sitting at a piano now, you just where your hands fall, you naturally they're all in the right places. So mm-hmm. it's 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 just about choosing. You know, I mean that that uh, combination of chords and melodies, and you're off to the races. So I think that. Um, that's where it started for me. Going watching my dad do uh, in Australia, the, they're called RSL clubs, those sort of sports clubs, and um, and watching him do the standards. and And I remember once we had an electric organ. I'd never even looked at it. I remember walking past it one day and turning it on, and I was just able to play the melodies of Dad's songs. Mm. And he sort of looked at me like I was an alien, you know, and just how do you how can you do that? And I said, I don't know. And and that it, it started there. I was just sort of able to play it, and the more I got into, the more I, it was almost like oh, there's these black and white keys on it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just buttons and whatever. And 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 that was where it started for me. So it was like the doors to the universe just opened. Yeah. And and it was like wow, okay, there we go. There's stuff to learn. And and that's applied to me whenever. And if if I've ever felt frustrated because. We didn't have a guitarist or a bass player. I just taught myself, and just thought, "Well, I'll be that guy." And you know, I've, and I've sort of had that attitude about many things, of course, until you come across a real bass player and a real piano player, <laughs> and then I'm quite happy to go, "Okay, okay, okay, okay." <laughs> <laughs> um, at what point then did do you start writing, and and when did you realise that there's potentially a, a career in songwriting? I was really fascinated as I was growing up. So I was probably about, I was 11 when we first came back to the UK. Um, they moved, my parents moved back. And I um, went to high school in a, in a mining town in Sheff- outside Sheffield. In a very tough time, the 80s was a tough time in, in uh, the north, you know, with mines closing, steelworks, and that's all that we're about here, you know, steel and, yeah. and coal at the time. Um, and uh, so so it was a tough time at school. A lot of kids didn't have anything. I, my parents didn't have anything. You know, I didn't have any gear. I had to borrow synthesizers and stuff like that, and I was fascinated um, about uh, electronic instruments, and in particular synth sounds. So I just got really into that. And, of course, from being from Sheffield, we'd got the Human League and Heaven 17 and Cabaret Voltaire and, you know, Aphex Twin after that. So it was just like one, like, massive, iconic electronic band after another. So it, was, it did seriously influence me. And, and once I started in that zone... I wanted to start writing songs. I, you know, I wasn't just playing them. I wanted to actually come up with new ideas. They were rubbish, of course, absolute garbage. But <laughs> uh, my cousin, it turned out, who was a PhD student, so he was much older than me, and I'd never met him, you know, because I'd grown up in Australia, um, was a was a musician. He was a bass player, and he had a couple of synths and a drum machine and a porter studio. So that was it. I just used, used to bug him every weekend. He was meant to be doing his PhD dissertation, but I would go around and convince him that uh, he needed to write songs with me, his cousin, you know. <laughs> and and that's where it started. And 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 then from then onwards, I I can see it 
no other way than an addiction to recording and uh, and making and writing songs and and all the rest of it. So that that carried on throughout my school years until I got to the upper sixth when um, we did a gig in school to raise some money and they let us spend the money in the music department. I, I don't read music or write music. I've never have done. Um, but of course I used to hang out with musicians. <laughs> so yeah. it, it used to make me look like I could, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, all the best people were in the music department as far as I was concerned and, and players and all the rest of it. So I'd use elements of the school orchestra on my demos and, you know what I mean? And said, can you play like this and sing it to them? And they sort of were wary enough to do, to do that. And, and that's where it started for me, that, that interest in arranging and, um, getting sax players in and everyone was like what are you doing you know this is like where's the synth you know and I was more interested in arrangement so so in the last year that I was at school it was quite funny um I made an album on this stuff and I'd go in at half eight and go oh let me just have a listen to what I don't look at my watch and it was half four five o'clock you know <laughs> yeah. and and this happened all the time no one came in there in this little room but, but me so I, I turned it into this little boudoir of a studio <laughs> and uh and and that was it I, I spent the whole year making this album and the very last day of school I was backstage on the the, the main stage because they had a big a really good posh cassette deck and 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 everything. So I was in there bouncing my mix down from four track on live mixing onto cassette. And I turned around and there was the headmaster. And and he saw he was I'm six foot six and he was as big as me, you know. And and I sort of looked up at him and I was oh no. And he and he, he said, Can can I have a listen? So I gave him my headphones and he sort of went, It was pretty good. He says, So what are you doing next year? And I said, Well, thinking about coming back and he said, Why? And I went, What do you mean? And he says, look, look around, look out the window, Elliot. These kids don't know what they want to do. He says, you know exactly what you want to do. What are you, what are you waiting for? Why are you wasting your time coming back here? I went, I thought, wow, okay. So I literally took him at his word and got on with it. I just thought, well, I've got permission now. So I didn't go back to school. I just got out and went on with it. And um, about um, five years ago, I did a charity gig at my old school and took some artists you know who who would be up for doing it i was absolutely nervous because it was the same stage i was in calamity jane on, <laughs> you know i i won i won the adam bailey drama award for playing joe the barman <laughs> time big time and I, I was there on the same stage nervous as anything but i'd invited my old headmaster um to to the uh, to the gig and at one point got him up on stage and gave him a platinum spice girls album you know nice. the, the the awards and just said look along with Celine Dion Brian Adams Aretha Franklin and the Spice Girls these wouldn't have happened unless on this stage right over there you hadn't told me to get he actually forgot that he told me this which is even funnier he was like i wouldn't have said that i said well you did you told me to get on with it and, and here we are you know it was a real great moment he cried it was very emotional it felt like a really great you know completion of a circle you know that in that same space we managed to come back together you know decades later and his advice paid off yeah what an amazing thing for a teacher to have, have done for a young man amazing um, thing because there aren't there aren't many who would encourage it, especially at that time as well, when yeah. when 
you know, it was all as you say, it was all about industry and going and getting a, a trade, getting a job to actually say, don't don't come back to school, go off and be a musician. You know, in your fifth year, you have a careers meeting. I can yeah. tell you, my careers meeting was really straightforward. I went in there and saw this guy, and he went, "Oh, help, sit down, kid." I sat down, and he went, "Right, um, which pit do you want to go down, Dunnington or Maltby?" I said, no, 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 mate. I want to be a songwriter. And he just went, very nice, Dinnington or Maltby. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> they were my options. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, when, trying to be a songwriter, in it, I felt, I, I, you know, it's the equivalent, I felt the songwriter equivalent of Billy Elliot, if I'm honest, you know, yeah. in, in yeah. a little mining town like that, <laughs> trying to trying to become, or, or, you know, brassed off, you know, you're a euphonium player in a mining village, you know, what are you going to do? You know, yeah. it's, 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 it, it felt like that. It felt like this is never going to, I mean, who, who, how do record, record producers and songwriters make a living? I had no idea. So you have to be in a band, but I didn't want to be in a band. That was the, that was the dichotomy, you know. Yeah. So from there, how do you then get to the point of actually writing your first hit that, you know, gets to the charts? What what put you into the position to allow that to happen? So um, I was working, I got a little job at the Wimpy um, in Sheffield, you know, flipping burgers and mopping floors and all the rest of it. But um, after a year, I did did ascend to the dizzy heights of shift supervisor. So I didn't have to I didn't have to mop the floors anymore. And uh, it's funny. I remember I was I, I got a job as a tea boy in, in the final year of school. We entered a thing called TSB Rock School, which was a a, a nationwide uh, song contest thing for bands. Sponsored by TSB, it was great, and we went on telly and we came third. I came third in the country, which was great. So, so we entered this thing, and I, and and um, we had to go into a studio and do a demo. And the guy who was in that studio called me one day out of the blue and just said, "Look, I'm moving the studio to the city centre, and you seemed really up for sort of learning. And do you want to come and be a tea boy and learn the studio? And if things work out, you could perhaps take on some sessions." I was like, "Oh my god." So I would literally, I took, I took the early shift at the Wimpy, which meant I finished at three. I would then go down to the studio and T-boy the session till, you know, it finished. And then he'd let me stay there at the studio until, and there was a spare room where I used to crash and, and, and have a shower and then go to work. And I'd get like three hours sleep and then go to work again. And I did that for like a year until I could learn to use the equipment. And then after a year... Um, he uh, basically, I was allowed to start doing sessions, the weekend warrior rock bands and all that. And and actually, um, during that time, started work with some songwriters in Sheffield, one of which had had a hit with Alison Moyer, so he was like bona fide. And yeah. um, we, I started doing their demos because I, I just got a gut name for doing good demos, and I learned to program the computer and and sequence and stuff. So they came to me and said, look, will you do our demos for it? And that turned into co-writing. So around this time, like I say, I was doing the odd, for money, I was doing the odd Weekend Warrior band. You know, they'd come in. They were all death metal bands, and they were always from Barnsley. No, no idea why. Um, <laughs> but they'd come in, and uh, we'd do these things. But I got quite pretty good at it. So by the first time... I actually had a hit, which was producing Lulu. I'd written a few things, Danny Minogue and and a couple of other things that had tickled the top 40. 
But um, the first hit was Lulu and Independence, and it went in the top ten. And, and we produced that. But I'd also had a number one death metal album the same week. And I didn't <laughs> tell the death metal band that I'd got the Lulu records. I didn't want to lose my, you know, devil horns. I didn't want yeah. to... <laughs> I didn't want to lose my cred with them, so it was it was so, such a funny old time. But I had to sort of give that up, and 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 because uh, things got busy, and that led to take that, and and then uh, the doors to the universe blew open again. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. That's how it went. <laughs> In terms of your writing process, you talked a little bit already about collaboration. But when you have yeah. an initial idea for a song and start to write, how? Does it quite often end up in a very different place by the time it goes out? I'm, I'm thinking of Spice Girls record because I've seen a live version of you performing it. The style and the energy of it is yeah. very different to what's on the production of the original records. How how much is that in your mind as you're writing? Um, again, it's it's a bit like the songwriting thing in in that writing for the artist specifically. The, the the line between writing and production doesn't really exist for me. When I start, we're making the record. Do you know what I mean? Then the, quite often the demo ascends into becoming the record, just by virtue of carrying on and adding some bells and whistles, and you know maybe revocaling, remixing. But I tend to um, start that you know that that process of. It's all energy, and and um, I try to get into the right zone straight away. So even the writing demo of "Say You'll Be There," the original writing demo, is very similar to how the record turned out. But when it comes to me doing a version of it, I then have creative license because it's not—I'm not the Spice Girls, you know. I'm not—I'm not any of those bands. So I'm able to go, okay, let's yacht this up a bit, you know. <laughs> let's make this a bit more me. So yeah. when I do a version of it, it's very musical, very—you know—the bass. Well, I'm the bass player, so I get to walk around a little bit and, you know, get the, uh, set up a different sort of funkier groove. And I just think that, um, you know, it's all about interpretation. And that, and that comes from honesty. Again, if you don't have that in you, you would just do the cover, wouldn't you? You'd just do the yeah. standard cover version. But I think I just think that anyone who's an artist wants to give the, give it their flavour, you know. But, but for me, writing from the outset is about getting making it the artists and not mine you know and that's that's the biggest challenge for me so even though right now i'm working with tom seals and it's a swing sort of very piano almost honky tonk to a degree but that sort of flavor of real musicians it's completely the other way it's all piano and and guitar and you know horns and strings and things like that so it's you know and then other artists i'm working with you immediately turn to the synths you know and and start there because that energy from the beginning has to be right if otherwise what you end up doing is writing a song and then shoehorning it into something else you know yeah. uh, recently um we had a hit with dame shirley bassey and uh, Look But Don't Touch, which was actually a song we wrote, specifically a, a Me Too song. You know, I wanted to write a song like a strong female empowerment song. And it'd be great if we could find uh, a strong female to sing it, you know. And there aren't that many left, you know. There aren't that many amazing, <laughs> you know, old-school icons. But the guy I wrote it with, um, he's uh, he met her at a AIDS um, foundation gig and he's just so bold as brass and just went up to her, you know, and just said, uh, hi, I'm David, uh, let me write you a song. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And he's, a, you know, he's only a new artist, David. He's just, got, he's just got, you know, so much confidence. And she was just like, okay, 
he said, he went, McCall, who, who do I call? You know, <laughs> got some numbers. So we just, I said, look, this would be awesome. Why don't you just follow this down and see what, and God, God bless him. He got it to her directly and she loved it. And that was it. We ended up with a with a hit with Dame Shirley Bassey. So it's it's uh, sometimes it's literally starts as honestly as like let's write something like this. I want to do something like that. And, and and I think that musical theatre has helped me in that area more than anything because there are no limits and you have got to go with the story. It's all about the story and the the making it active. So it, it gives me confidence to do things that are a little bit riskier. And Gary Barlow and I are always constantly look, looking for some swerve, you know, to do some some crazy angle to follow, to uh, to write for, because we both have this thing in us. We both have this absolute love affair for all kinds of music. Yeah. I want to uh, ask you a bit about writing for musical theatre. Um, I'd love mm. to know what, what brought you there initially, but also how you felt about the challenges of it, because obviously when you're writing a pop record... Yes, there's emotion and and to a certain extent possibly storytelling in it, but yeah. writing for the stage, you're looking to further the plot with the music as well. So yeah, what, yeah. what were the specific challenges of that coming from a pop background? It was a massive challenge, but but thankfully I'd worked as a songwriter in Nashville and it's a very similar kind of um, ethos in that the song has to be story-driven for them. You know, and the one thing they're constantly doing is bringing you back to, yeah, it's a cool line and it rhymes and it's really nice, but what does it mean? You know, it doesn't say anything about what we're saying right now. So it comes down to, it's it, it perfect for me in all kinds of ways because it plays to that thing that I do regarding getting myself out of the way. Do you know what I mean? I don't have yeah. an ego when it comes to these things because it has no place in songwriting. So just park it and get into what the song needs. I've always, I always say to people, look, the song is king, you know, and what we get to do is serve music. As musicians, we get to serve that energy and we're allowed, because we are this sort of sieve where the energy comes through, we get to personalise it. That's it. That's all we get to do. That's our role. If you can surrender to that and be happy to be a part of something bigger than yourself, then only good things are going to happen. That energy is going to keep coming because you're not saying, oh, it's all about me, you know. So mm. I, that started not realising it, but that started very early for me in my career, which is why I've always preferred to work with artists for artists. So musical theatre was just a, a, an addition to that discipline in all kinds of ways. So... But I'm saying that, you know, um, especially on Broadway. I mean, talk about diving in the deep end. It's not like I'd, you know, done something at the local theatre and then <laughs> transferred to the the old Vic or whatever and had a, a good sort of pedigree there and then decided to... Yeah, to, Calamity to Jane at it. school to your own it, well, Broadway I show. went from the Adam <laughs> Bailey Drama Award. Remember this, Adam <laughs> Bailey Drama Award. From Calamity Jane and playing Joe the Barman... <laughs> To Broadway, that's a story for you. <laughs> uh, but um, it, it's funny. I, I was always, you know, I was sitting there writing lyrics and writing the songs. At the, I was at the Coalface. Gary was on tour, so I'd speak to him every night 
we need to do this, I've done this today, rewritten this today. And then he'd come over for a week and when he could and we'd rewrite songs or whatever. But generally speaking, we sort of did a lot of it over the phone. Now, that's only possible because we can finish each other's sentences. You know what I mean? So it's it's uh, we have such a great connection like that. We write a very similar way, so he knows what, what needs to be done and I'll just get on with it and do it. So we have that trust between us, which is brilliant. But... Um, it was really, really tough, and they would keep using words like "it needs to be more active." I was like, "What does that mean?" You know, until it suddenly occurred to me. It was actually David Chase, who is our music supervisor on Broadway, and he's just a genius and an incredible, probably one of the most um, sort of the cl- most clever musician I've ever come across. Who could just hear a song and go, "Okay, this is where we could go with it for the, you know, for the underscore." It's just I thought that was an amazing experience. But he, he would say to me, look, there are two kinds of songs. There's the diegetic performance of a song in a, in the show, and that's just a song and the performance. The meaning is important, but it's just a performance in the performance. Or there's the song which is basically the thoughts and emotions of the actor that they can't say. Other than that, there's no reason for music. So, And that, that made it very, very easy for me. Just that little bean of information was like, Okay, I get it. So so when they're saying that, they're saying it so they don't need to sing it. But when they can't say it, because, you know, and I always use the, 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 the classic situation of there's a guy and a girl on stage, and he's thinking this, but he can't tell her. So he sings it to us, and we as the audience get, get a, 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 an insight into his heart and his mind. And then she's on the other side of the stage, and she can't tell him how she's feeling, so she sings it to us. Because that's what she's feeling and saying and in, in her head. And we know what's going on. Eventually, they turn and they kiss because that's the connection. But we've heard the backstory. We know what his insecurities are. We know what she's afraid of. So so I saw that as a real beautiful opportunity as a songwriter to, to sort of really be on it. And, and, and that that's where it all started for me. So So getting into that zone of even more a case of getting out of your own way and totally surrendering and subjecting yourself to the story and what the story requires. And we are literally facilitating that requirement. This musical needs this to happen. Mm-hmm. You either do it or someone else is going to do it. And and, and that, that is the discipline. I, I mean, I love that kind of pressure. That was the best thing ever for me. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned a few times about you, your collaborations with Gary Barlow and yeah. full disclosure from me, I'm a huge fan of both his songwriting <laughs> and his voice, but also just yeah. as, as a person. I think he just seems like the nicest guy. Yeah, exactly. And I know that you and him are, are very good mates. Um, when did that collaboration begin and why has it been so successful, do you think? So after doing the Lulu record... I, we got a phone call, would you like to work with Take That? And I was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. So we, we got together, and the the way it worked back then was um, you went into the record label. Gary was a, a very proficient in a studio, so you'd do really good demos, and he would put then put his lead vocal on a DAT tape. And what you did is you chose the song you want to produce, and they give you the DAT tape, you do your music, and you lay his vocal over the top. And you got a couple of grand to do that. And if you they liked it, you got them paid to make the record. So it's a bit of an audition in producers gig, you know. So, but the song that I wanted to produce, which was a song called Wasting My Time, didn't have the vocal on Dat. 
So I thought, hey, I've got creative license here. So so I got a real live band in. We did it with horns and a whole live band. They'd never done that before. It was a bit of a risk. But I just thought, I think Gary's a musician, you know. And uh, I did my best Gary Barlow impression, uh, which I've gotten better at over the years. <laughs> Gary Barlow, yeah. uh, and, and got better and better at it over the years. And uh, But I sent him this demo, and um, the next thing is, um, you know, Phone rings. Hello, this is Gary Barlow. Is it Elliot? Uh, coming to work with you, mate. We're going to do a demo, and that was it. And he came over, and we just got on brilliantly because they'd never worked with a producer that was the same age as them. So right. we just became like a gang of mates, you know. Yeah. And um, during that session of producing, um, recording, producing a couple of songs for the album. Um, he said, look, we need a song for Rob because he was going to do Relight My Fire, but the producer got the key wrong. He can't sing it in that range. So we need a song for him. So we just wrote Everything Changes that day. Now, the crazy thing is I always had an ambition to have a number one by the time I was 25. I thought if I could have a number one by the time I was 25, I've got a story for the grandkids, you know. Granddad had a hit one day, you know. And uh, Everything Changes went to number one on my 25th birthday. Literally wow. on that day, so it was like it was a weird the universe saying you need to do more of this kid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where it started, and um, and we've just been great mates ever since. I mean, our careers went in different directions in the sense that you know, take that of course became a phenomena, and I just put my head down and got on with being a songwriter. And and that that experience of working with Gary, I would I remember saying to him one day. Um, how do you do this the way you're doing it? You're just like hit after hit. What what are you doing? He said, I don't know. He says, you just put your head down, L, and get on with it. You don't even think about it. And I remember thinking, right, okay, I, I feel like a phony. I've got a number one record with uh, Everything Changes, and I feel like a phony. I don't know what I'm doing here, you know. So I convinced my manager, and I'd just signed to Sony as a writer, to let me buy me on my dad's house because they wanted a bungalow, and they had a little semi-detached house. And it had an extension where I could put the studio. And I said, look, let me just put get enough gear together so I can shut the door and just learn to be a songwriter. I promise it'll pay off. And they all went, yeah, okay, we'll take that gamble. We'll give you enough money to do that. And I did that. The first thing, the, 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 the first project out of that studio was the Spice Girls. They came and crashed over at my house. The next one was 911. We had nine consecutive hit singles with them. And and Kavanagh came out of that. It was ridiculous. And, of course, when the Spice Girls went off, I'd sort of overgrown, outgrown the studio. So I bought the studio in Sheffield that I've now got and had for 30 years, I guess. Um, and, and that's how it started, really. So it literally did start in an honest place of, I want to learn the craft of songwriting so that no matter what comes through the door, I can hack it. That was my challenge yeah. to myself, you know. And that's been the biggest thing for me. So when it came to working with Brian Adams, I mean, I, I still am a Brian Adams fan. So, you know, I never lose touch with that sort of amazing feeling of singing an idea to one of the iconic artists of my era yeah. and him singing it back and me going, oh, my God, it's a Brian <laughs> Adams song, you know, quietly in inside, you know, without wanting to sound like a fangirl. And, and I just, you know, just absolutely lose it. I, and it happens all the time, you know, and, and I never lose touch with that 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 uh, innocence of it all. You know, I'm still yeah. blown away with music all the time. Being right in the centre of what was going on with the Spice Girls at that time, right in the beginning mm -hmm. of it and having them stay over and writing with them. <laughs> are, are you 
uh, even like today, are you aware of the wider cultural impact of your writing and in pop culture, or do you feel quite removed from that? If you hear one of the Spice Girls hits, do you think back to that time of being hunkered down in the studio with them, or do you see it the same way the rest of us see it as no. you know, a defining sound of the nineties? It's all so personal to me that that um, those experiences are part of my you know my DNA. I think that, that you know spending that time in my house with them, they're all crashing over. I was relegated to the settee because the three <laughs> bedrooms were all taken up with Spice Girls, and it was like having a hurricane in the house. You know, but it was brilliant fun, and we had nothing but fun doing it. Um, but but so my memories are of those times in that little extension of my house writing songs and the dramas that that happened as a result of five girls you know with with egos writing and becoming themselves and then yeah. going out and changing the world you know it's like a really powerful time and but the same applies with Gary or same applies with with Brian Adams or anyone I write with that it's those memories that I treasure of the process. I never get over hearing things on the radio, you know, and I've had a lot of radio success over the years, and you still never get over it. I remember a brilliant time in London in a cab when uh, When You're Gone um, was just lived on the radio, and um, it was just, and got in the cab, and sure enough, it came on. And I sat there at the back of the cab just enjoying the moment, you know, and... Um, <laughs> and and all of a sudden the cab driver turns around and he went, you know what, it's effing record, it's on all the time. I used to change the channel, it comes on that effing channel then. Oh, I'll just leave it now. And I just thought, I'm just going to have this. I'm just going to take this moment. And it, T- Tommy Cooper famously used to say to cab drivers at the end when he'd give them a tip, he'd, he'd pop something in the top pocket and go, here you go, have a drink on me later. And he'd walk away. And when they'd look in there, it was a tea bag. <laughs> <laughs> put a tea bag in there. So there's two things there. First of all, he used to carry a tea bag so he could do that. The second thing is he had no idea that that cab driver would ever say anything, but it didn't matter. You know, yeah. what was important to him was that he had the moment to himself, you know. <laughs> yeah. Here you go, mate. Have a little drink on me later on. <laughs> just that that's just priceless. <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts on the, the state of the recording industry these days compared to when you started out obviously the advent of streaming versus physical sales um and also just uh, the quality of writing and the quality of talent that now makes it into the charts do you think that it's what it used to be uh no i don't i don't think it's anything like it used to be i think that uh i think they need to work this streaming thing out the income is terrible and um i just don't see how it can get any better for musicians if there's no there's no way of of making an income out of it you know and songwriters and as a result the standards go down because us seasoned songwriters go into areas like musical theater where you can write a musical and actually earn a living you know and it, hopefully it's successful but this is the thing you know you're living by your wits again and that's all right I'd, so for people like me gary i mean gary's a different case he's a national treasure so he'll can make an album and tour it and that's his income but unless if you can't get to touring as an income, um, I'm learning this as an artist myself now. You know, all of a sudden making an album, you all, you know, I'm, I've put this out myself. I'm paying for the promo of it. You know, is it ever going to pay for itself? Possibly not. Is the reality? Mm-hmm. But that's where record companies are as well. So there's a lot of uh, aversion to risk. 
There's a lot of the only things that are getting signed are things that have done the social media thing and have built their own audience. And there's, you know, there's, it's more of a safe bet. But let's be honest. As a result, we ended we ended up with a a lot of transient artists that aren't really sustaining a career because they can't, you know. So they're going to work it out because what's going to happen is the sales inevitably go down. The streams go down. People just start listening to the stuff that they love, which is why nostalgia is so huge. You know, when an artist comes back, they do a tour. It's a sellout because people want to celebrate the soundtrack of their lives. And it feels like the moment, like there is no soundtrack. It feels like you've got these one-offs here and there, artists that aren't really, there's the odd one, obviously, Dua Lipa, artists like that who come through and are consistent, and she's good, you know, that's a simple thing. Rag and Bone Man, I hope he continues again, really good. So, you know, there, there are the odd ones, but nothing like it used to be, 80s and 90s, even 2000s. So they need to work it out, and it feels like, the pressure is building on these big tech companies to to value music more and start paying for it properly because because otherwise we just end up doing something else you know that that means that you can earn a living and do something else you know yeah it's it really feels like something has to change at some point it's getting yeah, it to a sort of boiling yeah. point with it doesn't it um because as you say it's it's filtering down it's affecting the standard of what's been put out and, and even yeah. of what's been chosen for playlists on the radio you know the the radio yeah. stations are determining what we listen to and you're sort of being told what you should like and, and that's all you hear on that's the radio. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do a radio programme on Tuesdays and Thursdays on a community station, which has sort okay. of become global as a result of just followers, you know. And it's fantastic fun and I play whatever I want and I do themic nights, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. And people come on Facebook and make requests and tell stories and, oh, this was the song that whatever. And it's just brilliant fun because people are celebrating the soundtrack of their lives. Yeah. You know, that's the whole point of music, you know. And and I think I think the industry's lost touch with that a little bit. But as anything, they only start to react and, and do anything about it when it starts affecting the bottom line. And I really think it's getting to that point. Yeah. Um, so this podcast is all about the lives and careers of uh, different musicians. And I just want to know a little bit about your relationship with other session musicians and people who yeah. come into your studio. How how hands-on are you in that process? And do you have a sort of loyal group of guys who you'll always go to if if they're available? Yeah, it's funny, actually. We were talking about this yesterday, about how tough it is to break into new areas. As a composer, I wanted to work in film and television, and uh, I got an agent and all the rest of it. But it's really, really difficult to get a gig. And several times it's come down to me and the other guy. And the other guy gets the gig because he knows the director. And I I can forgive that. I get it. I understand why it's so difficult to take a risk on someone new. Because, you know, if I want um, a percussionist, I go to my mate Aaron. You know, if I want horns, my Steve Baton's played for me for 30 years. You know, if I want backing vocals, I go to Tesney. So it's it's really tough to break out of your patterns. Because it's like, for instance, I'll give you a perfect example. This time has, has proven more than any other time. Um, we're all separate, but Tesney Jones, my backing vocalist, is in uh, Kent, but she's got her own little rig. So last night, we finish a track, let's get it down to Tess. Over, since then to now, all the backing vocals are done and waiting for me in my inbox. You know what I mean? She just does them, bounce them, send them back to me, slot them in the track, we're off to the races. So 
I, I don't have time or opportunity to take a risk on other people. Now, that's not saying I don't do that. Every now and again, you hear about, oh, so-and-so is really good. Let's get him in. If you've got the luxury of time, it's usually a time restraint. But most of the time, you turn to your guys. You know, Johnny Hayes is my guitarist. He's a brilliant player. Or Rue Walker is the other guitarist we use. It's one of those things. I mean, Jim and I are quite proficient musicians, so we tend to do a lot of it ourselves. You know, we we you know we both play guitar, piano. I'm a bass player, so we we sort of get through what we're doing. You know, depending on the project. Also, I've invested heavily in an amazing sample library, so I can do full blown orchestral or horns or strings or whatever um, at home and make it sound pretty close to the real. A lot of yeah. musicians, my horn players don't know that it's not real. So it's a pretty good testament. But yeah. whenever possible, then you replace it with the real deal for the record. you know. But it just means that you can provide a really in-depth view of it all. But this time we've been in, where we've all been working isolated, has been ever more relying on your your team of people that you use all the time. And they're all the guys I use for live gigs, so it's it's pretty straightforward, you know. It, it's ever so difficult, though, and I, I, do, I do appreciate there's incredible talent out there that find it hard to get in because the producer has his team. Yeah, and I'm assuming that those musicians, the reason they've been with you for so long is because they're very good at what they do, but also you must enjoy working with them and on a personal level get on yeah. with them. Listen, I'm a real energy guy. Anyone who knows me knows that that's first and foremost for me. So you spend, you know, most of the time larking about and just being humans, you know, and enjoying each other's energy and space and and humor. And then, of course, once you've once everyone's in a great great space, I learned this a long time ago as as a producer. You need to create an environment where people feel safe. Because with that safety comes confidence, and with confidence comes the ideas, and the energy starts to flow. And I think that uh, that cold approach of right, okay, come in, you know, you know, plug in, let's go, is just so hard to sort of maintain a a, a positive energy. So for me, it's always twice as much time as we need because half the time is going to be coffee and messing about and yeah. and uh, and and getting to know each other. So that really helps if you know each other. And you know when they come in the room, you can have a bit of a lark, and then you get pro. You know, you get your head on, right, let's get on with it. And because they trust me, you can ask them to do things that might be a little stretch outside their safety zone, and you get incredible performances as a result, you know. So it, it's, it, it's very much an energy thing for me, and it, but, it, but it works. You know, that, that when I, whether I'm working with a new artist or a session player, it's about creating an environment where they feel safe. And that's really interesting that, that that then is what results in the best possible work at the end of the day because of I the energy so. that's created, yeah. I think so, yeah. Just to tie things up a little bit, do you have, say there's someone listening who's experimenting, maybe writing their own songs, maybe interested in a career as a producer, Yeah. do you have any advice for people who are, who are starting out what, what they could be looking to do right now in order to get to somewhere along the line of where you've been? I think that the best advice I can give is absorb as much music as you can. Because even even if you are consider yourself to be a whatever style writer and producer, that style of music is is uh, has been influenced by lots of things before it, you know. And you should try to get to know the the pillars of music that have influenced everything starting from folk 
and classical music and then into blues and jazz and, you know, understanding, trying to understand what it is about these, even if you don't like it initially, just try to absorb it, you know, just let it wash over you. I promise it will come out in your songwriting and your production because you'll go, that really worked, that thing, that thing, that hook really worked and it was a saxophone and some other instrument. Oh, it was a trumpet. You, you, you know what I mean? You learn these things. You go, okay, I'm, I'm going to save that for the time that it, it it's required. Even if you're working in a different style, you the, there are influences in other areas of music that will have a, a profound effect. So fall in love with as much music as you can is the best advice before deciding right i'm gonna do this make sure it's real it's the job of a songwriter is the same as the job of a choreographer or an architect your your art is designed to transfer emotion to have people feel differently after experiencing your art than they did before and if you can sort of get okay with that and like i said earlier You've got to get to a place where you're okay with being a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, it's not about you. It's we, we as musicians, get to serve music. And if you can get yourself into that zone, this is nothing to do with music or style. It's to do with the soul and energy. If you can get back to start from a fundamental point of, of getting out of your own way, surrendering to something far bigger than you, it can only go better. It can only go well because you're going to get more of what you're asking for. You're going to get more of the energy you're subjecting yourself to. So that's the best advice I can give anyone. Get back to the basics of the small stuff first and make sure you're in the right zone to create. And the only way you receive is surrendering, and that's it. You've got to be a part of something bigger. Incredible advice, and what a, what a brilliant way to look at what you do just even after all of this success that you've had to to think about it in those terms is just really inspiring um finally Elliot where can people find you online where can they tell us a bit about where they can get the album and find out more about you so so my album a yacht named sue is on all download sites and streaming sites spotify apple um you know amazon all the others Deezer even you know it's it's everywhere I'm actually making vinyl and CDs the vinyl's on order I can't wait to have that and um so so you know the, the social media I'm on all of it uh, strangely which is un- unusual for me and it's itself but Instagram is Elliot Kennedy Music Facebook Elliot Kennedy Music and Twitter as well so it's you know you can find me out there I'm quite active on social media now and enjoying it and I've got some great followers that come you know are really good uh, at, uh, at, at comments and uh, urging you on it's great I intend to play live as soon as we can I want to tour this stuff and I tend to do a lot of storytelling as well. When we're doing gigs, it's like a, an audience with almost great fun nights. So I want to take that out on the road to small theatres and, you know, just sort of be myself. I think I can't, it's no point in me pretending to be something I'm not. So it's about trying to, you know, as, find as many ways to connect with people who are ready for what I've got to say, I guess. Amazing. Thank you Super. so much for your time and uh, for all those insights into your incredible career. Um, it's been such an honour to talk to you. Thank you so well, thank much. Thank you. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode and huge thanks to Elliot once again for taking part. He's such a nice guy, so down to earth, so humble despite all the huge success he's had. Um, and it really meant a lot that he took the time to have that conversation. 
I've put a few links in the episode description to Elliot's work, both the playlist that includes all of the songs that he's written in his career, and also a link to his new album, which you can check out on Spotify, Apple Music, and any other streaming sites. Don't forget that we have new episodes every Monday, so hit subscribe, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you.